It has already been mentioned this evening what a blessing it is to be able to assemble in the way that we are. And I'd certainly think it appropriate to echo that sentiment at this point and how rich it is for each of us to be able to appreciate those spiritual blessings available only in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 1 verse 3 so beautifully tells us that truth and aren't we, many of us, able to testify about the blessings individually in our life in regard to that wonderful statement. As you notice on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson this evening will take us back to the book of Daniel. And you may also notice by virtue of the title, there's a number one at the end of it. No doubt you've already appreciated what my intent's going to be here. I'd like us to begin a series of lessons. Really, I hope a series of lessons extraordinarily faith-building in the sense that we are going to be given a panoramic view an incredible view at that, not only of the days of the life and times of Daniel himself, but the God of heaven permitted him to look down the stream of time, centuries and centuries, and told him precisely what kind of kingdoms there would be, the nature in some instances of how long they would last, and even went so far as to inform him about the kingdom that would follow them. We're going to look at that beginning in the series of lessons starting this evening. And as we do that, might I say that it will culminate, of course, as we come to the New Testament. The Old Testament time and again is such that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, to quote Romans 15:4. And so the book of Daniel will hopefully set that before us unlike any other book in the whole Old Testament. These introductory thoughts, I hope, will prompt us on our way. In particular, you'll notice on that slide, specifically the last one, although there are many prophecies found in the Old Testament, none of them have the sweeping range of those in the book of Daniel. None of them are presented in such a specific and particular way that they could easily be, have been utilized by those of the first century era as confirmation of God's providential working in the affairs of men. That's one of the great lessons I think you and I shall appreciate in this series. The God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men. He sets kings up and He takes them away. He establishes kingdoms and He removes them at His will. We're going to see that in the book of Daniel. And even as Eddie led us in prayer a moment ago, of course, with our own nation in mind, may we ever be mindful of the lessons gleaned from books like the book of Daniel. As we turn the slide then and proceed to the next one, why don't we give thought to a little bit of background as we get ready to, to look at this book of Daniel. It would do us well to appreciate certainly some of its particular features for they will have a tremendous benefit to us as we give specific thought to the prophecies. There are 17 books of prophecy in the Old Testament. It begins with Isaiah and ends at Malachi. And of those 17 books, the first five of them are usually called the books of major prophecy. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're called major because they're longer books of prophecy, not that they're any more important. The fifth of those books of major prophecy is the book of Daniel. It is, of course, one of the briefer, quite frankly, of those major prophetical books... As we know, Isaiah has 66 chapters, Jeremiah has 52, and yet Daniel only has 12. Nonetheless, we appreciate the magnitude and enormity found in a book like this one. Another thing that is very intriguing with regard to the book of Daniel is the very convenient way in which the Holy Spirit has divided it for us. 
The book has 12 chapters, as we've already noted tonight. The first six chapters are basically narrative. In many ways, they tell the most familiar records and stories of the book of Daniel. It's in those six chapters we read about a fiery furnace. It's in those six chapters we read about Daniel being thrown into a den of lions. It's in those six chapters that we appreciate about a great image with various metallic parts. But we must not forget there are six more chapters to come. And those last six chapters are the central features of the prophecy in many ways. And so we shall look at them in due course. As you do that, though, we come now to the reading that was read in our hearing earlier. As Cale read for us from the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1, would you revisit it with me? For there the Holy Spirit has informed us like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. The history unfolds then for you and me as I've tried to indicate on that slide. According to the opening verse, we come face to face with the third year of the reign of a particular king of Judah, his name Jehoiakim. By that very note, I've tried to give you a particular set of features that perhaps historically are very useful. Eighteen kings in terms of all in Judah, he was the 18th one and there were not going to be many to follow him. In fact, that Judean empire was shortly to go off into Babylonian captivity and this in fact, was the very beginning of those trying and tumultuous and difficult times. You may well notice that Jehoiakim ruled from 608 to 597 B.C., and hence the third year of that would have taken us to the fall of 606 or perhaps into the spring of 605 B.C. And at that point, we read in these particular verses that the Babylonians came against Judah. And did you note something interesting in verse number 2? It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Who determined when Judah ultimately would fall? The God of heaven did it. One couldn't blame it on the military mind of the Babylonians. You couldn't blame it on any particular world features. It was God who had raised Judah up and it was God who could take her down. Surely in light of that, you notice that in this attack, it particularly notes that the Babylonians were the successful ones. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar brought his Babylonian war machine against Judah, against Jerusalem in particular, and he began to have great success. You'll notice that he actually raided that beautiful Solomonic temple. We remember the temple that Solomon had erected, all the gold and the ornate metals that had, in fact, been placed within it. Nebuchadnezzar took some of them off to Babylon and used them to honor his God. Believe it or not. Before we end the book of Daniel, those same vessels are going to reappear in a much more prolific fashion. May I say at this point, one other thing that we quickly are told in chapter number 1 not only did Nebuchadnezzar take away things like vessels out of the temple, he took people too. Beginning in verse number 3, 
it says, And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge, in understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. If you and I then were asked to summarize that, it would read like this. The finest of the people of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar wanted brought over to Babylon so he could instill within them and brainwash them with Babylonian ways. They would, of course, ultimately, it would be his hope, be fine statesmen and citizens in the Babylonian kingdom. All of that has the following interest. There are four of these youths that are given names for you and me. We're told who they were. You may notice now as I read verses 6 and 7. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And those are our four youths. And of course those names have before them the consideration of wonderful recognition of God. I've even given you at the bottom the, the meanings, the actual circumstances surrounding what those names suggest. The name Daniel literally means God is my judge. We don't know anything about Daniel's parents. But we do know that they chose the name Daniel for their little boy. They chose a name representative of the great rulership and reigning character of the God of heaven. God is my judge. But what about these other three youths? The name Hananiah means Jehovah has been gracious. Again, we know nothing about Hananiah's parents, but consider the name they gave their little boy. And then the name Azariah, which means Jehovah has helped. And finally, the name Mishael, which means who is God. These were Jewish youths. They had been reared in such a way that they appreciated the law of Moses, it would appear, and did so with enormous consideration. And now they had been hauled off to a foreign city, a foreign land, to serve a foreign god in a place to which they had no familiarity. I believe any of us with a moment's reflection would imagine just how difficult that must have been. Think back to the time when you perhaps were 17 or 18 years old. What if in fact you were able to witness that some enemy nation comes in and likely kills your parents right before your eyes because they're too old to be of any use or helpfulness to them. But you as youth, they now take you off against your will hundreds and hundreds of miles away to a foreign land that you know nothing about. A people who don't even speak the language with which you're familiar and they worship a God that's foreign to you. Can you imagine how challenging, how difficult, how strange, how in fact very shaking of one's faith that might be? And yet that's the very thing that happened to these four youths. You'll notice over to the right there are three other names that usually are associated with the latter three. I've always thought it a bit unusual that we know Daniel more than often by that name, and that is his Jewish name. However, you'll notice in verse number 7, he was given a different name. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. 
And it's unusual that we know Daniel by his Jewish name, but we usually refer to the others by their Babylonian names. It seems like we would do better to refer to all of them by their Jewish name. The name that gives honor to the God that not only created them, but of course that created you and me. With regard to Daniel, we then of course are going to see many other occurrences in this book of not only he, but the other three youths as well. As we come to the bottom of that slide, having set the stage for a little bit of our history, let's continue on to give some thought to another set of features mentioned in those first two verses that Cale read just a moment ago. Back to verses number 1 and 2, it says, King of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Let me pause at that point. Verse number 1, mention was made of the king of Babylon, but then verse 2 made mention of the land of Shinar. What is this Shinar? What relation does it have to Babylon? Are we talking about the same place? Or maybe is there some rich history that might also be a very beneficial thing to each of us. Well, at the top of this slide, it's perhaps very fair to say that the ancient Babylon, at least that part of the world, is a very rich historical area. And you and I know that from our study of the Bible. In fact, for a moment, could you just consider with me the various, at least some of the things that have occurred in the area you and I would recognize as Babylon. First of all, think about the various civilizations, even biblically speaking, that had their origin, their beginning in that very place. I would almost turn immediately, as I'm sure any of us would, and ask, where was the Garden of Eden? That beautiful garden that God, in fact, placed for Adam and Eve to dwell in in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. The thing is, as you and I look at the four rivers that in fact passed near or through that Garden of Eden, two of them were the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. My friend, they are the same place Babylon would ultimately be. And so we recognize even the blessed Garden of Eden was in a part of the world you and I would recognize that later would be Babylon. Isn't it interesting today? It's modern-day Iraq. I-R-A-Q. Modern-day Iraq is the very place that has its head as, as ancient Babylon. In addition to that, notice what else we read even in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 10, reference is made to a mighty man named Nimrod. Interesting it is that he was said to have lived in Shinar. Same place we're studying here in Daniel 1 verse 2. In addition to that, that famous Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The opening nine verses of that chapter speak about the individuals who, as they traveled from the east, they began to erect a mighty tower and a city and a name. Question, where was the tower being built? The text says the land of Shinar. Same place, the same Babylonian region that, of course, later would be that place that would take center stage in the book of Daniel. As you look at all of them, I've asked you to notice some additional references. Although maybe it's lesser known to us, in Genesis 14, reference is made to a king named Amraphel. Who was he king of? It says king of Shinar. 
this particular place on earth, sometimes historians in our day will call it the cradle of civilization. Think about all the ancient civilizations that began either here or very near that place that is modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylon. The Assyrian Empire had its beginning there, in fact, not far from where Babylon would ultimately be, right there on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And hence, the setting of the book of Jonah will be there. That's where Nineveh was, and that's where God told Jonah to go and preach, but at first he didn't go. One by one, these places are very important from a biblical standpoint, and of course, very important to the book of Daniel. You'll notice next on that particular slide, Maybe it would be fair at this point to at least look briefly at a map. My hope was in presenting it just to give you and me an appreciation about the placement of this modern era and also where that was in the ancient, ancient time as well. In the middle of that, over to the left, is the, that blue area. That's the Mediterranean Sea. Just to its right, a whole host of cities, among them Jerusalem, for example, but if you travel a little bit further over, over to roughly the middle of that map, perhaps you're able to see a large word of Syria. In fact, let me get the pointer. The word of Syria is right there. These blue rivers that you'll see are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This particular area, of course, was also, you'll notice, Babylonia was right near the head of those rivers. And so, when we read of Nebuchadnezzar and his palace and his empire and the various escapades of his military action, it was all in this part of the world that is modern-day Iraq. You'll notice then that some very interesting developments over the centuries have happened in this area. As you and I go back to the previous slide, Let's in fact appreciate maybe this king that's mentioned here again in verse number 1. It says the king that came was named Nebuchadnezzar. Almost immediately, maybe our mind wonders, well, who was this king? He's mentioned often in the book of Jeremiah. He's mentioned also in other Old Testament books. But he seemingly here occupies such a pivotal role. Here are a few historical features and facts. It is interesting, it seems, that the Babylonian Empire rose to prominence. Notice in 606, that is again just roughly the very same time that the book of Daniel begins. Third year of King Jehoiakim. Prior to that, Babylonia was not the main empire upon earth. It was another kingdom the person who had a large factor to play in making Babylon the successful empire it was, was Nebuchadnezzar. He came to power in 606 B.C. and reigned for 45 long years. It was during that time that he crushed, Babylon, or rather crushed Jerusalem. It was during that time that he, in fact, made one of the grandest kingdoms that the earth would ever know. In fact, Daniel chapter 2 is going to tell us a little bit about that kingdom, and so I'm going to reserve most of that until our next lesson. But you may notice that one of the things about Nebuchadnezzar that we learn immediately is he was a rather proud and arrogant man. We're going to see God address that too later in the book of Daniel, and did so in an unforgettable way. But maybe for the time being we could appreciate 
maybe a, a lesson. I've tried to intersperse a few lessons that it seems to me are very telling for you and me. Consider this one. I'm sure by now you've perhaps been in a state of puzzlement. That part of the world apparently in the ancient era was a lush, green, inviting, pleasant place. The Garden of Eden was there. Every picture on the news you and I have ever seen of it today, it looks like a dry and barren place with very little, if any, vegetation. What changed? What made that place today look the way it does when centuries and centuries ago it looked so different? Could I ask you to contemplate this? What happens to any place, any land, when God places a curse on it? After all, that's what happened to this place. That region of Shinar and the very nature of Babylon, as you and I read texts like Jeremiah 51, that's a long chapter, I admit. 64 verses of it are detailed about what God was going to do to Babylon. May I say to you, it has happened. All the things that God decreed would occur, it would no longer be a pleasant place. It would no longer be a place where people inviting would want to live. It's all happened. God did what He said He'd do to it. You and I, centuries later, still understand that what, re what places over there are nicely filled with vegetation, humankind has had to make it. Because naturally it just isn't that way. Shouldn't that remind us of what happens to any nation that forgets God? In Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If only all peoples would appreciate and follow that with great urgency. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, though, let's continue our journey. That Babylonian empire, the book of Daniel is going to tell us it was not going to be permanent. It's true that God raised it up and He allowed it to stand in the great way that it did and Nebuchadnezzar was blessed to be its leader. But it wasn't going to last permanently. In fact, in this very book, God is going to give details about the fact it was going to pass off into oblivion. That happened with the Medes and Persians in 539 B.C. It was the Medes first, quite frankly. But with that particular history, we're going to find details in this book that specify exactly when and how that was going to happen. Aren't you amazed and aren't you thankful we can serve a God who watches over human history? In fact, He watches over human future. He knows exactly what's going to happen and He raises up empires and He causes them to crumble when that is the thing in accordance to His will. Maybe in light of that, let's continue on again and notice the following. Because it's time to give some thought, especially to the later parts of Daniel chapter 1. We introduced a moment ago this youth named Daniel. And although we made some comments relative to the fact of how he came to be where he is, it seems very much worthwhile to think about that yet again. Consider the following with me. The opening chapter of this book tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem in 605-606 B.C., one of the individuals that he captured, one of the youths that he took back to Babylon was Daniel. Now how old was Daniel when that happened? As nearly as we're able to piece that together, 
The book of Daniel seemingly very clearly indicates he could have been no more than 17 or 18 years of age. Something like a junior or senior in high school, at least in, in our day today. Think about quite often what could well be the consideration of a youth that age. Sometimes we look upon youths and we think they're unsettled, they're unstationary. They're a bit, let's say, unconcerned about the ultimate characteristics and natures of decisions and wisdom in life. We're going to find that wasn't true of Daniel. I suppose there is no finer example of purity, no finer example of dedication to the God of heaven than this 17 or 18-year-old boy. Each of us would do well to reflect often upon what the example is that he set before them of that day and us today. In particular, why don't we notice, in chapter number 1, look at what begins to happen in verse number 8. It says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. You may notice then that it was the desire of King Nebuchadnezzar that those Judean youths, those youngsters from Jerusalem, they need to be brainwashed into the Babylonian system and so for a period of three years. Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to his servants, make sure they eat the finest of Babylonian meat, make sure they have access to the fine drinks that we have here in Babylon. After all, back in verse 4, they need to be taught science and knowledge and Babylonian learning. But you'll notice that verse number 8, Daniel made a purpose. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself. May I ask you to appreciate in that the statements that I've put about the middle of that slide. Daniel made a resolution. A resolution that related to the food that the king was desirous of him partaking of. Daniel, it says in verse 8, wished not to eat it, nor to drink of those liquids. Now again, please appreciate, here is a 17 or 18 year old youth standing, if you please, to his superior's and wishing to, in fact, disagree with their approach. Doesn't that take courage? Doesn't that take confidence? Doesn't that take assurance? Doesn't that take conviction? And yet, as you and I look at it, might we give thought to our second lesson of the evening. Daniel made a purpose, again, a definitive one, with a goal of maintaining righteousness before the God whom he served and loved, the lesson, of course, one of the things that might be drawn, I've tried to state like this. Righteousness doesn't happen by accident, does it? A person is not going to be righteous before God accidentally. A person is righteous by making definitive and dedicated commitment to do that which the God of heaven has affirmed is correct. And that's what Daniel attempted to do. As he did that, how often do you and I appreciate texts that teach in principle the same thing? I would ask you to reflect on Romans 1.17. Didn't Paul write to that church in Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
And there it is. How will the just live? By faith. And that doesn't happen accidentally. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. Aren't you impressed then with this youth, Daniel, hundreds of miles from his homeland, dad and mom not there to tell him what to do? And he made a commitment to do the things that were the bidding of God. We surely must be impressed as we continue our journey. You'll notice that in light of that, Daniel made a request of Melzar. Melzar was one of the servants of Nebuchadnezzar who was given control of these Judean youths, these eunuchs. Verse number 10 reads it like this. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. You notice that in that conviction then that Daniel had, he on this occasion said, For ten days. Let's have a little experiment. Let's have a period of testing. You give us pulse to eat for 10 days, and then you check our countenance and see if we aren't as fat in flesh, as full in countenance and appearance as those who are eating the king's meat. As we close that slide and come to the next, lesson number three will soon be before us. Because as you and I think about these things, what a grand statement of Daniel's confidence. How did Daniel know that things would work out well at the end of the ten days? Daniel was a confident young man, don't you think? So confident in the God whom he served that he could rest assured that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and that are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. So confident he was that he, it seems, had no qualm or question about making the offer of this ten-day period of testing it also might well be noted as we come to those, you and I today also have so much to which we can turn. If God be for us, who can be against us? To quote Romans 8.31. And we even saw in 2 Kings 6, though that was earlier in time than this book of Daniel, how sweet it is to give thought to that which occurred when the servant of Elisha was so concerned because the enemy seemed so strong. Elisha prayed to God, Open the eyes of my servant. And the servant was able to look about him, and suddenly he saw the hills were filled with the horses and servants of God. And then he felt at ease because he knew, More are they that are with us than they with them. You and I still can feel just as confidently about that exact same thing. May I submit to you then how important it is to be a faithful Christian. Because you see, you're on the Lord's side, if that's true. But oh, how serious it is to not be a faithful Christian. For then the Lord's not on your side. As we continue our journey, aren't we aware then of Daniel's long and faithful life in service to God? I stated earlier that he, it appears, could have been no more than 17 or 18. Maybe he was even a little bit younger than that. I wonder how long Daniel served the great God whom he loved. 
In Ezekiel 14, 14, we read there, three great individuals are listed, Noah, Daniel, and Job. And there, Daniel is listed alongside the great worthies of Noah on the one hand and Job on the other. As you and I will see later in this book, it would appear that at least at the age of 90, Daniel was still faithfully serving the God whom he loved. And he was even appointed as a leader in the government at the tender age of 90. Isn't that amazing? For all these years, Daniel then was a powerful servant to the true God of heaven. And what a great influence he was able to be to so many to point them in the direction. And at one point in our study, we're going to find even Nebuchadnezzar admits that Daniel's God is the true God. That's impressive, isn't it? As you and I come near the close of our lesson, one last set of ideas, and the lesson this evening will be yours. Our study of Daniel now brings us to this. A fourth lesson. The unwavering and dedicated service that Daniel exemplified in his life. I suppose... Each of us, as we encounter the difficulties of life, maybe we drop into a valley and then our faith becomes strong again. And then a little bit later, something else happens and we lapse into another valley. We are given no impression like that of Daniel. A man constantly on fire for the Lord, constantly motivated and dedicated always, even under the most dire of circumstances. I suppose we could use that to ask. If you or I had been in Daniel's position, would we have been faithful in Babylon? It would have been so easy to become unfaithful. I'm no longer near the temple. I'm no longer here with dad and mom to make me go to church services, if you please. But Daniel was a man with such conviction in heart that despite the losses that he had of his parents, despite the fact he no longer had direct access to that physical temple, no longer did he have the loving city of Jerusalem at his side. We see a man of faith who, before the book is over, will be cast into a den of lions because of that faith, but who, by the same token, God of heaven will bring him out safely. Aren't you glad to be serving a God like that? And doesn't it give you and me confidence? Johnny Ramsey once made the statement in one of his sermons as he was speaking about the courage and the dedication of Daniel. He said the reason that Daniel was not consumed in the lion's den was because he was all backbone. Maybe there's something to that, at least in principle. The fact is, I want to be like Daniel, don't you? I want my faith to be at least in principle as strong as he is. And all of us, of course, should wish the same. It is interesting that our Lord Jesus Christ quoted from the book of Daniel on at least one occasion, one occasion of which we have record in Matthew 24. We'll look at that as we journey further in our book, I must confess. But when we do, we're going to find what an incredible statement it is about Daniel. In closing the lesson tonight, let's summarize what we've learned, what we've seen in the opening chapter of this, of this book. Daniel is a very rich prophetical book. Unlike any other, it sets before us the times of the Gentiles. It's going to unfold hundreds of years of history, and I don't want to spoil it, but we're going to find every kingdom rose and fell just like God said that it would. Every one of them. In fact, they even had the characteristics that God said they'd have. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that astounding? And yet, as we study the book, what a great encouragement to our faith it ought to be. We've learned four lessons. Four lessons that we have at least seen in passing tonight. The first of which was the sad and sore state of what happens when God curses a land. It's happened over there. But in addition to that, we have thus seen in the life and times of Daniel the holy, definitive, and dedicated purpose in his life. We also saw the courage and conviction that he exemplified and his long and consistent service to God. May all of those things be descriptive of you and me as well. It might well be tonight as we each analyze and examine our life, what about you and me? Are you faithful to the Lord? Are you serving in our day and time at least like a Daniel from the days of the old? If you are, may you be faithful throughout life. But if you're not, why not tonight make the change necessary so that you could influence others as wonderfully, at least in principle, as Daniel did? The plan of salvation is as follows. The Lord Jesus Christ commands that you believe in Him as the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that tonight, what a joyous occasion it would be. If though you have been a faithful Christian at some time, but tonight you frankly have to admit your life bears no real resemblance to Daniel. Your faith perhaps is in a very low ebb at this point, and maybe even you've been a negative influence to those about you. Make a change tonight. God will forgive you, you know. Jesus still died for you, and He wants you back at His side. If we could help you by praying to God on your behalf, why not let us know? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this chosen song, and now would be an opportune time. Why don't you come if you need to while together we stand and while we sing?